Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. So we are continuing our talk about a brief history of ballet, which I put a long uh, precursor to in the first episode about how brief means brief, and a lot of things will get left out, unfortunately, because it is a very, very long and storied tradition. Uh, And in the first part, we covered ballet's origins and early evolution, but we didn't even make it to the 18th century yet. (laughs) So we still have plenty of ground to cover today. And that also means that if you haven't listened to part one, you really should, because you might then be like, wait, who is this? How do we get here? What is going on? I don't know what ballet decor is. Uh, We left off with the founding of the Académie Royale de Musique and the ways that its leader, Jean-Baptiste Lully, worked to ensure that his academy had as much power and prestige as possible. In 1681, Lully's stage had a milestone. Women who were professional dancers appeared on the stage for the first time in the ballet Le Triomphe de l'Amour. While women of the court had performed the roles written as women in the performances at the royal court, once productions were being mounted on a stage in a more theatrical setting, it had been men dressed as women filling these roles up to 1681. And although ballets were continuing at court, these were decreasing in frequency as the performances staged by the opera were becoming more and more prominent. By 1713, the Paris Opera had a regular core of two dozen professional dancers. By the time Louis XIV died two years later in September of 1715, ballet had become entirely its own theatrical entity outside of the realm of court. And by that time, it had also spread throughout Europe and beyond. Great Britain, Italy, Russia, the territories of the German states, and many other places were all Uh, starting their own ballet traditions. And the Ballet of France was, to some degree, starting to be seen as a little bit passé. It was the art of a bloated and overly indulgent royal court, although it was still revered as the birthplace of the art form. After England's monarchy was restored under Charles II in 1660, he had brought French ballet masters to England in an effort to add some of the trappings that were expected of a royal court. But ballet was being seen as a merry diversion. It was not really a cultural institution. In the early 18th century, though, a dance teacher named John Weaver helped bring more serious thought to ballet in England. Weaver had become something of a dance scholar. He translated Foyer's notation in 1706 and then wrote his own book on the subject called An Essay Towards and History of Dancing, in which the whole art and its various excellencies are in some measure explained containing the several sorts of dancing. I think one of my favorite things on the podcast are those long, crazy book titles. They're my favorites. And I like how this is uh, long, and it has both towards with an S on it and and history. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Weaver, though, saw so much potential in ballet. He really thought that if England could reform French ballet into its own art, it could foster civility and regulate passion and draw people together and offer this shared experience that could make all viewers equal as they watched. He believed in staging serious pantomime ballets, and he had some early commercial success with them. 
But even so, a lot of the ballet performed on the stages of Britain in the 18th century were still French or Italian in origin. But what really bolstered the British ballet during this time was actually its lack of regulation and etiquette requirements in comparison to that of France. And this resulted in one of Paris's most famous dancers, Marie Salet, leaving France to perform on the London stage for several years. In London, Salet was able to work outside the bounds of the Paris opera's rules. She started performing narrative solos where her ability to convey emotion through acting and movement without words could be expressed without that formality. She was really beloved by audiences in Britain, but still went back to France in 1735. When she tried to innovate in Paris the way she had done in London, the king threatened to have her arrested. She retired from the stage in 1741, but continued to appear in performances at court. But she had left her mark on the dance world by bringing less formal and more emotive modes of movement into the performances. Another French woman was also innovating at the same time in a rival position to Salet, and that was Marie-Anne Cupie de Camargo. And whereas Salet relied on emotion to draw in her audience, La Camargo, as she was called, achieved levels of technical proficiency beyond all of her peers, including steps that had historically belonged to men's roles. She even raised the hems of her skirt so that the audience could fully appreciate her incredible and very precise footwork. For the record, there is debate about whether she was the first to do that, to raise the hem of the skirt. Um, Keep in mind, these are still regular clothes for the most part that people are wearing, uh, not what we would see as tutus now. Uh, But she definitely did do it, although we don't know if she was the first or not. I'm thinking about all the folks for whom tutus are regular clothes. Well, that too. In the mid-18th century, ballet went through a transition led by dancer and choreographer Jean-Georges Novaire. In 1760, Novaire, who was in his early 30s, had been performing and composing ballet since he was a teenager. He had published his book Letters on Dance and Ballets, and in it, he pushed to move this art away from spectacle so that things like costume and sets would be less important and the expressiveness of the dancers would come to the forefront. Novaire's writing was really influential, and it sparked a movement called Ballet d'Action. And Novaire was critical of just about everything in the dance world in his writing. And because he was famous throughout Europe as an accomplished dancer and a composer of ballets, a lot of people read this book. And he was very open about his opinions on the productions and the dancers at the Paris Opera. Uh, Some critiques were favorable, others were utterly scathing. This is kind of like if a very famous actor today wrote a book and broke down how he thought other actors stunk in their roles, but some were really good. I mean, it was that level of like, and everyone bought the book and read it. It was that level of critique. He was also very critical of l'Académie Royale de Danse. He pointed out that despite the organization's mission, no comprehensive formal writing on dance had materialized from their work. And that criticism continued, even as he joined the organization in 1775. At that point, as we mentioned at the end of the previous episode, the king's other established academy, l'Académie Royale de Musique, which evolved into the Paris Opera, was taking on most of those matters of dance documentation. And l'Académie Royale de Danse was left with certifying teachers. Yeah, their power was diminished progressively, and they were kind of just just left running a certification program uh, while the opera staged all of their productions. 
And while Novaire was criticizing the empty and wooden nature that dance had taken on in the years after Marie Salé's generation had retired, others, including Jean-Jacques Rousseau, thought that having ballets within operas was what was no good. To Rousseau, this idea of stopping for dancing ruined the story and the rhythm of the entire uh, production to just, <laughs> just throw these in periodically. Ballet was really getting a bad reputation as an easily dismissible art, and Novair wanted to reform and revitalize it. And part of that was separating it out into its own production and writing ballets that contained their own stories in their entirety that did not depend on the story being explained in a song or a spoken word. Additionally, he wanted dancers to stop wearing court clothes and hairstyles and to move to garments that allowed them to move elegantly and expressively. Up until that point, dancers were still wearing hoops under their skirts to create volume. He also wanted ballet to be staged in a way that the audience watched it and was drawn entirely into the world. No longer should there be boxes for royalty on the stage and the sightline of the spectators taking in the story. And things like set changes and effects, he said, should happen discreetly so that they didn't break the illusion of the story. Yeah, we mentioned previously that, you know, as it became like a a stage the way we would think, it helped create that illusion. But they still had some weird practices, (laughs) like they would have a stage manager blow a whistle to start like scenery changes (laughs) and stuff. And so Novera was like, why are we doing this? Be cool, you guys. Like, be quiet. Step carefully backstage. (laughs) Don't tromp around back there having loud conversations. Everyone who's ever been shushed in a backstage area can kind of thank Novair a little bit. Uh, We are going to talk about Novair and his influence some more in the next segment. But first, we are going to pause for a sponsor break. So as we mentioned before in reference to England's Charles II, ballet had become something of a French export. Royal courts of other countries were often eager to hire French dance teachers and choreographers to come and stage productions for them and also teach. In this way, ideas such as Novaire's spread beyond the stages of Paris. Novaire himself traveled throughout the European continent on a variety of jobs in other countries to mixed reception uh, before he was appointed the ballet master at the Paris Opera by Marie Antoinette in 1776. His time at the Paris Opera was controversial but also exciting. Some of the dancers viewed him as an interloper after all of his time away in other countries. They would deliberately sabotage his productions. Critics weren't always wild about the stories that he was telling in his ballets. They found them too emotional and sometimes frightening. But he really drew in the crowds and was generally a success. Even still, he only stayed at the Paris Opera for five years, and three years after his exit in 1784, the Paris Opera was formally endowed with a ballet school by King Louis XVI. The French Revolution, of course, impacted the arts. As the rebellion began, the opera house was even looted at one point for any props that looked like weapons. After a brief suspension of performances, the show at the opera went on, but it did shift a bit. Up to the time of the revolution, it had been closely linked to the nobility, and as a consequence, it was seen as a very wasteful and corrupt institution. The National Assembly was kind of uncertain about what exactly to do with the opera. Pierre Gardel was the man who steered ballet through these times in Paris and enabled it to survive as an institution of the people. And this wasn't because he was a revolutionary. He'd been loyal to the crown, and he had inherited the position of ballet master at the opera when his brother Maximilian died in 1787. 
But he was really excellent at navigating this shift from one government to the other, and he staged heroic stories in which he and his wife often starred. The wholesome reputation of the Gardells as an upstanding and moral family, and the move to simpler, more Grecian-style costumes really signaled a dismissal of the artifice from the French court. It gave the opera an image that moved forward with the political times. Yeah, people often spoke about what decent people they were, which was almost just as important at this period as them actually being good dancers, which they both were. Gardel held his post at the Opera House for more than 40 years, although at times he and other artists were suspected of still being royalists and had to swear their loyalty to the revolutionary cause. He weathered these times by staging productions for revolutionary festivals and ballets that supported the ideals of the cause and celebrated liberty from the monarchy. In 1794, during the Terror, Gardel and several other artists formally promised that they would not produce any more works that originated with the aristocracy. Uh, Those stories that had been part of the repertoire developed under the aristocracy, though, went right back into production after the Terror ended. After the Revolution, the simplicity and virtue that had been central to French productions came back to the stage once again, but it was also commingled with the aesthetics of the surge of decadence that blossomed very briefly after the terror, and that gave birth to the Romantic Ballet. Yeah, there was some fabulous fashion and sartorial uh, daringness going on at this time, largely among People who had been part of the aristocracy had had to go into hiding or be on the down low. And then when it was all over, they were like, back to craziness. And they like amped it up to 11. Uh, (laughs) But there are some great stories of crazy clothes that appeared during this time. And as ballet moved into the 19th century, its narratives started to take shape in the stories of woodland spirits and fairies. Often the stories of these ballets were about man's relationship to the mystical or spiritual aspects of nature. And once again, social dance influenced the development of new steps for performance, just as it had in Louis XIV's court. The waltz became very popular at masked balls hosted by the Paris Opera, It inspired a shift in the way couples danced together in ballet. The pas de deux became a more dynamic dance. Couples faced and engaged each other during the dance when before they had normally stayed facing the spectators. Yeah, it was like a side-to-side thing that was performed strictly outwardly, whereas now, when you think of a pas de deux, it's often very passionate or very romantic, and they're clearly engaged with each other, and it's about their relationship. Uh, But that was all new, born out of this time. There were other influences, also from government offices. So after Napoleon became emperor of France in 1804, he actually instituted an approval process for all Paris opera productions, both musical and ballet. Joseph Fouché, as minister of police, had the final word on which ballets could be staged. But after Napoleon was defeated, the tone of ballet shifted even more toward romanticism, The new middle class with new prosperity was starting to go to the opera, which privatized in 1830. Since it wasn't being overseen by a government office or by royal tastes, the Paris Opera, which was led by Louis-Désiré Véron, started starting in 1931, entered this golden age. It really fully embraced Romanticism. In 1832, previous podcast subject Marie Taglioni charmed audiences in her starring role in La Sylphide, which was choreographed by her father, Filippo Taglioni. 
Marie is often credited with ushering in and shaping the Romantic era in dance, which was due in large part to how natural, airy, and spirit-like her technique appeared on stage. This is a little bit ironic since she had, as you may recall if you listen to that episode, not taken to dance naturally. Uh, She had had to train rigorously with her father to achieve physical skills that appeared effortless to observers at the ballet. Marie's port-a-bras, or the manner that her arms were carried, was considered especially beautiful because they framed the head and face in an oval when her arms were raised overhead. And this is rumored to have been a style her father developed to hide a less-than-graceful back. Marie also appeared in this ballet on point, although it's probably not the first time she danced that way. It was definitely different from the way that a ballet dancer's toe shoes work today. Yeah, and Taglioni was not the first dancer to use full point as part of a performance. Uh, That is normally credited to Amalia Brugnoli in 1823. Taglioni saw Brugnoli's work and thought it had potential, but she also thought it looked really laborious that, uh, you know, you could see her kind of using momentum of her arms to swing up into that position. And she thought it robbed the movement of its grace. So for Taglioni, point work was sort of uh, peppered in as a transitional technique. It was used to create the illusion of gliding as she subtly changed her uh, the level that she was at on stage. And the shoes used to achieve full point at that point were not the resonant and stiff point shoes of today. They were soft satin with a leather sole and a toe with darning stitches right there at the, the tip. And the toe, like full point, really was a very tiny, tiny, almost pinpoint compared to like the, the more squared off toe of a shoe today. Taglioni is said to have burned through two to three pairs of shoes in any given performance. Maria Taglioni also created something entirely new, aside from technique or skill, and that was the celebrity ballerina. Women of the day saw her in her relatively simple La Sophie costume, and they saw her as an aspirational figure. They were really captivated by this dancer with whom they all identified, and they also envied her very expressive life. Taglioni inspired fashions of the day because women emulated the ethereal style that she became known for on stage. There was even, very briefly, a fashion magazine called La Sylphide that Taglioni consulted on, and it was printed on scented paper. I find that so delightful to think about. I would hate it because some fragrances give me a headache. (laughs) I would love it. Uh, Marie Taglioni's success and celebrity stature paved the way for other women to achieve similar levels. One of her contemporaries, the Austrian dancer Fanny Elsler, was able to carve out her own celebrity as a sort of counter to Taglioni's style. Where Marie was the ethereal sylph, Fanny was very much of the earth, and she was a much more sensual dancer. When the ballet Giselle debuted in 1841, its star, Carlotta Grisi, achieved her own fame as the lovelorn woman brought back from the dead to dance the man who had wronged her to death. La Sylphide and Giselle gained their own levels of fame as ballets as they continue to be staged in the modern era, and uh, they are sometimes recognized as two of the first, quote, modern ballets. The Romantic era also established things like romantic tutus that continue to be used today, but but didn't last forever. And coming up, we'll get into the culture and politics that led to its decline, along with what followed. First, though, we will take a little sponsor break. Taglioni 
Tony and Elsler retired just a few years apart, the former in 1847 and the latter in 1851. And as women had become the stars of the Paris ballet stage, male dancers had receded in importance. And with the end of the 1850s and the retirement of its most prominent dancers, Paris began to decline in importance as well, due in part to the ongoing political struggles that the country went through leading into the Second French Empire. As France had struggled with the ups and downs and the evolving identity of its ballet over the years leading up to the mid-19th century, other countries had also adopted the form. St. Petersburg in particular had embraced ballet more than a century earlier. The St. Petersburg Ballet School formed in 1738. In the beginning of the 19th century, French dancer Charles Dillot was hired at the Russian Imperial Ballet, and while working there, he guided the creation of several ballets that formed the bedrock of the Russian repertoire. He wound up reforming the Russian school. The ballet scene in Russia was bolstered in the 1850s by the fact that Taglioni's father, Filippo, had moved there for a while, as well as Jules Perrault, who had wowed London audiences in 1845 with his choreography of a pas de quatre, which featured four of ballet's biggest stars of the time dancing together. That included Marie Taglioni and Carlotta Grisi. Fanny Elsler had also spent time in Russia, and in 1850, Carlotta Grisi went to St. Petersburg at Perrault's request to dance on the Russian stage. During this phase in the middle of the century, the performances being staged in St. Petersburg were reworkings of the popular French ballet. But as Marius Petipa, who was another French ballet dancer, rose through the ranks in St. Petersburg, he started making his mark and developed some of the most famous and beloved ballets of the Russian repertoire. The Sleeping Beauty, The Nutcracker, and Swan Lake were all developed by Petipa with music by Tchaikovsky. Eventually, in the early 1900s, there had been this switch because Russia was then exporting its style of dance back to Paris with the arrival of the Ballet Russe in 1909. The Ballet Russe had been assembled by entrepreneur Sergei Diaghilev and included the best dancers of the Russian Imperial Ballet. These dancers were incredibly skilled and the productions were spectacular and their arrival electrified the European ballet world and completely revitalized dance culture on the European continent. The Ballet Russe was an exclusively touring company. Dancers had been traveling from city to city for a long time, but in the 1800s, travel became more common. Ballet had a vocabulary that crossed borders, so teachers and dancers alike frequently had periods of residency in foreign cities. But the Ballet Russe was a whole new level. Diaghilev wasn't a dancer or choreographer. He was a critic and a fan of the arts. And so he had assembled this whole company by getting permission to use dancers who were under contract with the Imperial Ballet for the tours. They would disperse at the end of the tour, and then he would have to reassemble the group for each tour season. After two years of this, he moved the company's base of operations to Monte Carlo so that he could build a permanent company and then not go through this renegotiation every single time they wanted to go on tour. The Ballet Russe featured a number of famous dancers, including Vaslav Nijinsky and Anna Pavlova, who eventually formed her own touring company. And it also fostered the creation of a number of notable ballets, such as The Firebird in 1910 and Petrushka the following year, which were developed under choreographer Michel Fokin. While Diaghilev and his company survived World War I and continued to work in Europe, the Russian Revolution of 1917 caused a gap to form between the Ballet Russe and their contemporaries back home. 
As a consequence, there was a fork in the development of Russian ballet, with Diaghilev's expatriates blending with and influencing Western European dance, and ballet in St. Petersburg and Moscow evolving in relative isolation. And while touring with the Soviet state dancers in the 1920s, a dancer named Georgi Valenshivads fled the company with his wife and two other dancers, and he was welcomed into the Ballet Russe by Diaghilev. And under his simplified name, given him by Diaghilev, of George Balanchine, he would eventually go on to be seen as the father of American ballet. But it was with Diaghilev that he first started choreographing ballets in collaboration with composer Igor Stravinsky. In 1928, Balanchine created the neoclassical Apollo, one of his earliest pieces, which is still performed today. Before we close out today's episode, we're going to take a quick look at ballet in other places. So the Royal Danish Ballet School was founded in 1771. It operates to this day, and academics and dance are taught in tandem. In 1830, Auguste Bournonville assumed the leadership of the Royal Danish Ballet and stayed in that position for 47 years. His teachings remain at the core of that company's vision today. Denmark's stability even before this long run of a career gave it a reputation as a haven for dance. Yeah, while other countries were having all of these upheavals politically and culturally, like the Royal Danish Ballet was, in essence, kind of preserving things because they were stable and, uh, you know, had consistency that other places did not. So often, dancers would run to Denmark for a little while to, um, or to Copenhagen for a while to work there just because they enjoyed returning to some of the pieces that they were no longer doing in their own countries. Italy made its own significant contributions, of course, to dance. We talked about some at the beginning of uh, the first episode of this two-parter. In 1830, Carlo Blasis, working in Milan, published his book, The Code of Terpsichore, The Art of Dancing Comprising Its Theory and Practice and a History of Its Rise and Progress from the Earliest Times. It also had the rather charming subtitle, Intended as Well for the Instruction of Amateurs as the Use of Professional Persons. Uh, Terpsichore, of course, just for context, was a muse and the goddess of dance. His book attempted to systematize dance, and a lot of the guidelines that he set forth in the Code of Terpsichore are uh, still observed today, including a more extreme turnout from the hip than had been the standard before. The illustrations in the book are identifiable as balladic postures, even to modern eyes. His work was unique also in that it was mathematically very precise. Uh, And there is a section of his work that I really love because he admonished dancers with natural beauty and talent to not become lazy and just rely on their good genes. And he wrote, quote, Do not rely on your own natural qualities and therefore neglect to study or practice so much as those to whom nature has been less liberal. For were you to possess the symmetry of an Apollo, Belvedere, or an Antonius, together with the happiest endowments, you would have but little reason to expect to attain excellence in your profession without study, industry, and perseverance. In 1929, Diaghilev died, and with him, the Ballet Russe, although it reformed a number of times under variations on that name. In its 20-year run, the company had included the finest dancers of the era, but had collaborated with renowned artists on the set and costume designs and posters and programs. This included Pablo Picasso and previous podcast subject Paul Poiret. 
Yeah, there are some beautiful posters uh, that were made for the Ballet Russe in the, the 1920s in particular. But because of the way that Diaghilev kind of relit the spark of ballet, by the time that he died, companies throughout Europe were thriving again, and touring ballet companies were traveling the globe. He really sort of started this whole second industry of touring ballet. And Paris, which had been the epicenter of ballet development before it faltered at the end of the Romantic era, once again regained its status under the guidance of Serge Lefar, who ushered it right into the mid-20th century as its ballet master. London also saw a sort of modern ballet renaissance in the wake of Ballet Russe influence. By 1946, the Royal Opera House of London had its own ballet company, which transitioned to become the Royal Ballet in 1956 with royal patronage. In 1934, George Balanchine, who had been working with a number of companies after Diaghilev's death, established the School of American Ballet at the request of dance patron and cultural influencer Lincoln Kirstein. Uh, The Ballet Theater was founded in New York in 1939. It changed its name to the American Ballet Theater in 1957. And in 1946, Kirstein founded the Ballet Society under the leadership of George Balanchine. That became the New York City Ballet in 1948. There is a lot more drama in that than that paragraph reveals, but (laughs) there was a lot going on at the time. One of the most important aspects of the growth of ballet, particularly in the 18th and 19th centuries, is how fluid it was in terms of actual people because the best dancers from any given location would often go on to travel to other countries to work, they shared the techniques and styles of their teachers. So ballet has become an international language and a connector that really evolved pretty organically. Today, you can find a ballet company in almost every major city in the world. If a dancer from one were to take a ballet class in the other, even in a place where they didn't know the native language, they could probably manage without too much trouble. Yeah, that was uh, one of those things drilled into me by early dance teachers. Um, Post-World War II, ballet has, of course, continued in the classical style, but it has also evolved and given rise to new forms of movement-based expression. It is not uncommon for a modern ballet company to have classical ballet, but also uh, feature modern or experimental dance. And dancers associated with a variety of discipline have achieved fame in the 20th century. So people like Martha Graham, Twyla Tharp, Mikhail Baryshnikov, and of course, Misty Copeland, all have roots that go back to the court of France. That's very lovely. I love ballet. Like I said, I feel bad because I know lots of good stuff gets left out because there's no way to include it all. If you are really interested in learning more, there is a a fantastic book. It is called Apollo's Angels, A History of Ballet. It is by Jennifer Homans, and it came out uh, not that long ago. It is really comprehensive in a way that very few... Uh, books on the history of ballet have ever been. She is also a dancer herself. Her research is meticulous and amazing, and it is comprehensive. Uh, It's a really, really good read as well. It's just written in a a way that's fun and enjoyable to um, take in. So I highly recommend that. I used it a lot on this episode. Uh, And obviously, I love ballet, so I have a personal vested interest in it. You know what else I love? Listener mail. I do. And this this one mentions two episodes uh, and food and fashion all in one, even though it is not a very long listener mail, but I love it. Uh, it is from our listener. I don't know if she pronounces it Megan or Megan, but either way. She writes, Hello, ladies. I thoroughly enjoy your podcast. And the most recent Six Impossible episodes made me laugh out loud in my office, which isn't weird anymore. They're used to me laughing randomly throughout the day. Uh, she spoke specifically about our comment about Creole food solving 
everyone's problems, and she just wanted to note that she hasn't met an etouffee that hasn't helped out a whole lot. I would concur with that sentiment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, she also says, thanks for the Nell Donnelly episode. I've lived in Kansas City for five years, and it's nice learning more about my current residents. This town would be a great place for a Stuff You Missed in History class live show if you ever do a Midwestern tour. Uh, anyway, thanks to the show. It's one of my favorites. Uh, yeah, we we always have our ongoing list of places we would like to be or be invited any of the above. Uh, so thank you also, Megan, for sending us that because I like to talk about food and clothes in the same breath. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you would like to write to us, you can do so at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. You can also find us everywhere on social media as Missed in History, and you can visit our website, mistinhistory.com, for all of the show notes and episodes that have ever existed of the show. Uh, and if you are so inclined, you should subscribe. You can do that on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or anywhere you get podcasts. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 